Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the home of the Christian Reformed Church. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, my name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Good morning. Uh, we're going to start off today with a correction. And this mm-hmm. takes us back actually to, I want to say, episode 33 or 34. The, this is a, a few episodes back. The Darwin Day episode. Yes, our, our Darwin Day episode. Uh, we reported on a uh, poll that indicated that a majority of, of people in the U.K., did not believe in Darwin's theory of evolution. The the article came from the UK Telegraph. Right. And it said, a poll reveals public doubts over Darwin's theory of evolution. Now, um, the same day that we posted that podcast, we had a thoughtful listener email us a correction on mm-hmm. that story, something that we, uh, we kind of just took this one uncritically from the press, uh, didn't actually look at their survey design. And, and when you actually look at how the survey was done by this organization, uh, uh, Theos, is the group that conducted the poll, there's actually quite a different interpretation you could get from this data. Theos should stick to uh, their theological concepts rather than designing questionnaires. Agreed. Right, right. Yeah, and basically what it comes down to is is some really fuzzy math. Well, the, the survey questions didn't actually add up to 100%. The survey right. was, here's, here's the questions. They're asking, do you believe this is definitely or probably true, not a true at all? The options are, one, young earth creationism, the idea that God created the world sometime in the last 10,000 years, 32%. Two, theistic evolution, the idea that evolution is the means that God used the creation of all living things on earth. 44%. Three, atheistic evolution, the idea that evolution makes belief in God unnecessary or absurd, 34%. Or four, intelligent design, the idea that evolution alone is not enough to explain the complex structures of some living things, 51%. Now, if you notice, those numbers don't add up to 100 now, do they? They add up to a lot more than 100. They add up to 161%. Wow. So people could choose more than one option. Mm-hmm. Or indicate degree of belief in multiple statements at one time. Mm-hmm. Right. So you could theoretically agree uh, that the process of evolution occurred and was the Earth is older than 10,000 years, but then you could disagree with the atheistic one. So mm-hmm. people probably keyed in on terminology on those things and said, oh, I don't think I want to say atheistic evolution because it has the A word. Right. 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 Surprisingly enough, it was 34%, which I think even in uh, Great Britain as opposed to the United States is still pretty impressive. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of shocked that 34% accepted evolution without any idea of a designer. Yeah. 
But when you're designing a questionnaire, the best way to do it is to keep the options sim- simple and mutually exclusive. Right. You don't as streamlined have, as possible. Yeah, you don't want to have what they call double-barreled questions where there's multiple components in each item, and you don't want people to be agreeing, able to agree with things that are contradictory. Right, right. So, um, so good news is, I guess, then, that the original poll we cited was incorrect, and it looks well, like— the conclusions that the article, uh, that the article made for it emphasizing right. that 51% of the British public doubts Darwin. Well, that 51% came from their figure uh, on intelligent design. The right. idea that evolution alone is not enough to explain complex structures, that's a far cry from doubting Darwin. The blogger who pointed out this uh, flawed design of the poll, the, the blog is called Open Parachute. Uh, the writer of Open Parachute points out that, you know, if you add up the numbers... You get 78% saying in some way they support the theory of evolution. Right. So uh, he he points out why doesn't the article instead have the headline 78% of Britons support Darwin. Right. Okay. Um, Now looking at the news, we have a uh, fairly typical Catholic crusade against abortion. Uh, only this one's a little bit different. This this one's surprising. We're not the only ones that aren't uh, checking our facts well enough. Yeah, there's a campaign by the Catholic Church to defeat the Freedom of Choice Act. The article from Time magazine online by Amy Sullivan says that the FOCA would essentially codify Roe v. Wade decision by saying the government can't place limits on abortions performed before viability. So no more state outlawing of abortion. It's it's impossible. So this FOC is is a, a FOCA is a big Freedom deal. Is a big deal for those opposed to abortion. Except the fascinating thing here is that um well the FOCA doesn't exist. This bill has not been introduced into the current Congress. No. They, they are rallying the troops. Thousands uh, to millions of Catholics are writing letters to their Congress people, phone calls, protests, all of that for an absolutely imaginary bill. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, they started a postcard campaign, spent tons of money on trying to get awareness of this bill out so that uh, that Catholics could protest it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where did they get this idea of of the FOCA being a threat? Well, they got it from a chain email. Always a good way to uh, get your information. The article from the Time magazine said uh, a chain email of unknown origin soon began, began making its way into Catholic inboxes warning of an imminent threat to the anti-abortion cause. Mm -hmm. The email said that the Freedom of Choice Act is set to be signed if Congress passes it on January 21st through the 22nd of 2009. But of course, the bill was never introduced into Congress in the first place. Now, the bill isn't completely imaginary. The Freedom of Choice Act was introduced in the 108th and 110th Congresses mm-hmm. uh, by Representative Gerald Nadler. Um, but the the bill was never voted on because it never even made it out of committee. Mm-hmm. 
anti-abortion advocates who are very concerned about Barack Obama's very strong pro-choice stance felt that this was uh, inevitably going to be on his uh, on his agenda, that, that it was going to be one of the first things pushed through Congress. Mm-hmm. But the article says when a coalition of 63 organizations sent the administration its top 15 priorities for reproductive rights and health, the FOCA did not even make the list. And I believe it was was your wife, Jeremy, who said, you know, how did how did they get that many Catholics to rally around an imaginary? Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. They've been doing it for centuries. So anyways, of course, many Catholics are furious now with the United Conference of Catholic Bishops because this is hard economic times. Uh, and so many question whether or not it's a good use of the the Catholic Church's resources to campaign against mythical abortion bills, and I could certainly see why they would be upset. Well, it's actually uh, that's what the, how they raise funds is that they dangle abortion in front of people and, yeah. and get the money coming in. So it's Absolutely. actually both sides of the political spectrum do that. Whenever there's a specter of something, you gen up the base by by having you know co- it's like waving a, waving a red flag in front of a bull. You just and you watch the donations roll in. Well, and I thought this was particularly manipulative because in that, that chain email that was sent out, at the end it said, if you don't send this on to at least 15 friends in 15 minutes, then 100 babies will die. <laughs> and that really, I mean, that's... Or you'll be excommunicated <laughs> for not sending this on. Those weren't actually in the... No, uh, they might have been. Joke. Hey, if they can manufacture things, then so can we. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We'll make stuff up, too. Do we want to discuss at all that survey that, that showed that the Catholic Church is imploding in the Northeast? You know, the the one that came out. Uh, I'm not oh, familiar with do. this survey. I'm, go, I'm not go, familiar please. either. Basically, the, it was a national. Uh, there was two big national surveys that showed that uh, changes in belief in the past decade, and that the non-religious group is the group that's increasing the most right. in yeah. every region of the United States. But that the denomination that's hemorrhaging believers is uh, the mainstream Protestant and the Catholic Church, especially mm. in the Northeast. And mm-hmm. the, if it wasn't for immigrants in the South, the Catholic Church would be tanking huh. big time. And so, like, the, it used to be the whole, you know, the, the fortress of the Catholic Church was Boston and, right, right. and uh, New York and all those things. But actually, they're, they're losing uh, believers, you know. So, uh, presumably, it's Latin American immigrants it, in America mm-hmm. that are keeping the church alive. Yeah, and so there's more right now. There's more Catholics in California than there are in the Northeast because there are Catholic immigrants. Uh, if ever there was a good reason against immigration in this country. <laughs> oh. I'm joking. Uh, I'm joking. But the whole thing with what you mentioned about fundraising is that they're also losing affluent right, donors. Right. And they're gaining people, but they are not affluent people. So they're they're financially they're in trouble because... Revenue shortage. Revenue shortage, yeah. But hmm. yeah, maybe we could talk more in detail about the survey after you guys look at it. But it has some... Uh, it's basically... Uh, it supports a lot of the things that CFI has been mentioning too. That the nuns, not the Catholic nuns, but the no religious people, are the uh, the fastest growing demographic. Well, well, let's hope that continues. We should say though that that uh, as as you brought up in your your presentation, just because the non-religious are on the rise, we shouldn't mistake that for meaning that atheism or agnosticism or specifically non-belief 
is is on the rise, nope. right? Because that category the, is the, very broad. The Pew survey actually separated the nons into atheist, agnostic, but then they also just talked about the unaffiliated, and those two groups are there's the religious unaffiliated and the secular mm-hmm. unaffiliated, and they're very. If you look at the demographics, they're completely different. The right. religious unaffiliated are people actually who might be members of a church that just isn't a it's non-denominational, sure. mega church people or whatever, and they're pretty. Uh, they're religious, they're less educated, they have bigger families, all the demographics, whereas the secular unaffiliated are more like you know, agnostics and atheists, but right. they don't say that, uh, and they're, they're, they have those demographic characteristics. So they're, they're t- within the nuns, yes, they're two separate groups of nuns. And as anecdotal evidence, I know, in fact, that um, our community is growing because uh, a friend of of my fiance's uh, classmate um, turned her father on to our show and has since uh, listening to the podcast has deconverted. So hi to Rachel's dad out there. Thanks for uh, giving up the ghost as it were. Whoa, 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 whoa. We scored a deconversion? We scored a deconversion. I think that's our first confirmed that conversion. Is, that's the... Uh, I, I've yeah. talked to people online who are like flirting with it. Yep. And, and a lot of a lot of newbies but who they, have they found the show. But they came to listen to the podcast uh, as a result of already being in that process. Right. We should You're have s- a control group though of people that we just solidify their faith because they hate our gut so much. Well, yeah. There's that too. <laughs> but no... no dear, uh, dear Reasonable Doubts, I was on the fence about religion but I hate you so much that <laughs> I'm going to believe even more. So. No. Uh, Chris is in a um, evolution class and they talk about science and religion every so often and and one of her buddies in the class um brought the reasonable doubts podcast to her dad and uh he has converted now so wow that's incredible yeah we'll get a little mcdonald's sign with the numbers going up <laughs> over 20 billion <laughs> yeah we're over gonna get a whiteboard one converted one one deconverted uh if there's any other out there uh, others out there who have deconverted thanks to us you need to let us know so we have accurate statistics and send yeah. us money for the deconversion box which is necessary if you're going to go <laughs> right and we we can't get our funding if we don't have solid numbers you know <laughs> if we can take this to the board and say look we've uh We've won over this many converts. So for every week that you delay sending us money, that's another 15 people that became religious. Exactly. Because of you, listener. You we are listener. joking because we don't even have a donate page on our uh, – No. On our – so so money. if you're thinking, hey, this, this is a good uh, operation. I'd like to support this. Uh, the, the best way to do it is is always to share with others yes. and, uh, and promote the, the show. Or, might, or you can just send us money uh, via PayPal. That's fine. We might be we correct, like we, we might be oh. correct empirically, logically, logically, rationally. But let's face it, we'll never be the fundraisers that the religious people are. No. We're a bunch of shabby atheists in like hoodie sweatshirts and yeah. Aquaman t-shirts. And uh, hey, hey. To, just to come up with a oh. random example. Oh man! All right. uh, well, we all have faces fit for radio. Yes, I used to be pretty. Okay. Well, um, moving on, we have. A, another segment of God Thinks Like You. And this one is more literally true to the title of God Thinks Like You than any of the other segments. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the headline is almost just that. And, and what is that headline? The headline from NPR Health and Science News by John Hamilton is, To the Brain, God is Just Another Guy. Wow. Broadcast on All Things Considered, March 9th, 2009. They started the the segment saying, The human brain, it appears, responds to God as if he were just another person, according to a team 
at the National Institutes of Health. A study of 40 people, some religious, some non-religious, found that phrases such as, I believe God is with me throughout the day and watches over me, lit up the same areas in the brain we use to decipher the emotions and intentions of other people. Hmm. This was one uh, way back that we started talking about, uh, I think, in our, our, our first interview with Ed Brayton. We were responding to an emailer who was asking, you know, what's, what's all this stuff about the, the God gene and evolutionary explanations for religiosity? And I, I, if I recall correctly, Luke brought up the fact that, you know, there tend to be two various schools of thought on this matter. Um, one is that religion is somehow adaptive in some way, religion itself or religious behavior helped people to survive and therefore evolution selected for it. And the other way of thinking is something a little bit different. Yeah, this is the um, uh, there's various theories under the heading of byproduct theories that mm -hmm. the that religion uh, hasn't specifically evolved because it's adaptive, like selected for, but that other areas of the brain that are adaptive, uh, are are corralled together, uh, and religion essentially rides on those uh, or parasitizes those areas. So, for example, hmm. one of the areas that people like to talk about is Tom, theory of mind, which means that we have the capacity to represent how other people might be thinking uh, and would be adaptive, for example, in a group to say, well, I wonder what Dave is, is thinking about, you know, right. throwing me over as the alpha male today, or how would he think about what I'm doing? And that, um, and that the large brain that we have really has different modules like that, theory of mind or things like social exchange, quid pro quo, if I give you this, I'm going to remember that, that you owe me one and that sort of thing. But that the, the theory is that uh, religion uh, uses a bunch of those different areas and, to, and that religion is not any one thing, but that it, it uh, has uh, it activates or specifically it has concepts that, that make sense to those different modules. Mm. A social exchange theory would be that, you know, if I sacrifice something to God, uh, he's going to give me a benefit, you know, or, or if something bad happens to me, I should do better and sacrifice it. Or theory of mind, in this case, so this article was that um, our brain has the capacity to represent God just like any other person. Uh, you know, a lot of these theories, like uh, we are, we've talked before about Pascal Boyer's theory, which mm -hmm. is very uh, elegant, but it's theoretical. There's not a, you know, this right. is an example where now where you can empirically test that. And so they had a bunch of people's brains and put in brain scanners processing both you know, non-religious other people type statements, mm -hmm. liking somebody or disliking, and then they had them do God type things for religious and non-religious people. So conceptualizing what God thinks. And it's the same modules in the brain. Really, the whole articles in a nutshell is there's not, there's not a difference between the way that we process God thoughts and secular thoughts. Mm -hmm. and, and that's true for religious and non-religious people? Uh, uh, it, yes, with the exception that, uh, as you would expect, um, with a positive or negative valence, like if a religious person saw a statement that they flashed on saying that uh, there is no purpose in life, they became emotional, emotional in a negative way, and mm -hmm. the atheist became negatively emotional when evaluating a statement like, you know, uh, God is everywhere or something like that. So we, we become, just like with political statements too, we become, our brain looks agitated when it sees something that doesn't fit with the schema. Right, but right. When, it, when it comes it's to the, the same types, areas of the brain though. Yeah, it, when it comes to things like the content of the knowledge, it's not, as they put it here, I love this, this word sui generis or, or unique unto itself. The findings support the view that religious religiosity is integrated in cognitive processing brain networks and social cognition rather than being sui generis. It's not something that's unique. We don't use special parts of the brain to think about God. Okay. We conceptualize okay. him just like any other person. I better do this, otherwise God will be pissed. And, you know, right, uh, right. I feel scared, so I need uh, my friend God. 
those sorts of modules are just the same. So for religious people, this is probably kind of a downgrade because there's this idea that God is is more than than just a human. Well, right? if they're trying to make the argument that uh, that because religion seems to be universal, right. and if that is a feature of biology, if they're trying to make some sort of teleological argument, say that therefore we were designed to believe in God. Uh, th- then this is a blow to them. Right. It's a blow to that argument. Right. Uh, this in itself doesn't really bear at all on philosophical questions of God. It just renders that type of argument um, useless. It's 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 not going to work. I could see them defending it this way too by saying, well, of course, if I'm a religious person, I would say, well, of course, uh, that the brain w- with our imperfect human brains. Well, mm-hmm. well, we don't have the capacity to, you know, realize God as He really is, and so we have to. He's essentially denigrated Himself to appear to our to our human concepts. Sure. Okay, and so just like with the whole tongue speaking brain stuff, they will say, well, sure, there's activation of the brain of when the Holy Spirit comes in, but that's, that's not how a, the Holy Spirit that's does it. How He does it? He, yeah. he adapts His to our to our hardware. His software has to adapt to it. So, so is this actually going to bother? Anyone? I mean, it, well, or it, is it, it should just... to anybody who's applying Occam's razor, because that's uh, that's just not a necessarily. I mean, Luke is dead on. That's exactly right. what people are going to be saying. But it's just an unnecessary uh, addition. The theory doesn't need that. Here's what I think is is good about this type of research. And by the way, that the, the one of the guys on the paper, uh, his name is Grafman, and he has a whole series of studies. I looked up his other work with things like brain functioning with like uh, giving in the dictator game, you know, where I make an offer and you could refuse it or accept it. Sure. And, and our brains, like a charitable type brains, it integrates, though, religiosity within a bunch of other knowledge into testable hypotheses. We can mm-hmm. see, for example, now yeah. using stuff like this, we can say, okay, if religion uh, uses these areas of the brain, uh, we can actually see how some of our religious intuitions are essentially just coming from plain old, plain old neurology, that we can either activate them through things like the, the magnetic stimulation, or we can see if people have damage to those areas, are they less religious? It just renders it more mm-hmm. more experimentally testable to say, here are the ways that, that, uh, that we process religious information in just a straight-up mm-hmm. secular biological way. Now, now, my question is, in the study, did they check the uh, brain's reaction to other imaginary figures? Like if rather than saying God, they said Superman, would they get the same results or or is Superman just another guy to the brain too? I remember Boyer was making the claim that uh, he was he was coming at this from a cognitive science model, not directly scanning the brain or anything. Uh, but he made the case that we have basic templates in our brains that kind of uh, cognitive templates that serve as basic inference systems. We take some data about uh, mammals. For example, all mammals uh, have live young, and that becomes part of our cognitive template for mammals. And that serves as an inference system because then we we don't have to – whenever you spot a new mammal, you don't have to learn again that that mammal will have live young. Uh, It's just, you know, naturally part of your brain's template for mammal. Mm -hmm. So a child even, if it saw a cat squat down and lay an egg, would be quite terrified by what it saw because it has that template. And I believe Boyer was making the case that – Something like belief in a god or an invisible deity is is basically what happens is the person template, the guy template, uh, just gets amended uh, as this is a person with these extra qualities that they are immaterial, omnipotent, whatever else. 
really supporting what what this uh, article's headline is to the mm. brain. God is just another guy. Yeah, you might remember some of those other theorists like Boyer and, and, and Justin Barrett have the uh, the concept that religious ideas become more sticky or notable if they are minimally counterintuitive. That's their mm-hmm. phrase where you have the, all the properties of something, but just maybe one violation of that, like a right. statue that talks or weeps. Mm. Not a statue that flies around and you can pray to it from anywhere. Because right. if it violates that too much, we say, well, it's not familiar to our brains at all. You know, a God that you can talk to only on Wednesdays is yeah. not likely to engender because it's so beyond our our templates for an agent that can communicate with us, our theory of mind, that it doesn't make any sense. So, yes, from that standpoint, our, if we, uh, from a developmental psychology point of view, if you're a child and you have these templates of, you know, if I cry, mommy comes and comforts me, whatever. It's not a stretch to say, if I pray, Virgin Mary comes and intercedes for right. me. Sure. But if it's too far. And so the brain is, this, in essence, set up to uh, have those Be cultural malleable. concepts. When they go to church, right. then they say, oh, yeah, okay, Virgin Mary, I get it interceding like that uh, and that and that those yeah. concepts right on top of their already existing person templates which would explain why we can't help but to anthropomorphize these concepts of god yeah. uh, e- even even in in hinduism you know where you have forgive me if the pronunciation is wrong but uh, nirgana brahma this god without qualities ultimate mm-hmm. reality you know that that anything you could say about it it can't apply uh, you, you know it can't capture god um, even if that's in the esoteric list of Hindu beliefs that a few wandering sages are going to subscribe to, the vast majority of Hindus are going to subscribe to very human-like deities. You see the same thing in Buddhism. Buddhism, yeah. Buddhism is very mm-hmm. abstract uh, uh, beliefs, but the, but the common lay Buddhist it they believes, have demons and witches and all that yeah. stuff, just like anything. Yeah, anthropomorphized concepts of of their deities. Actually, yeah, that's where Dave's idea is actually probably a good next step for them is as to take somebody who doesn't have a god belief but has, you know, a knowledge of like Superman or some yeah. concepts that that violate in the same way and see if those are identical to a religious person thinking about Super Sky Dad. Right. You know, it would be similar to like we've we've probably read about like where where Dawkins or or Michael Shermer, some of these people did put their head into that God magnet thing, and mm-hmm. rather than having a religious right. experience. They just felt a little bit weird or, you know, they just uh, maybe an out of body thing, but they didn't attribute it to the way a religious person would with that activation of being touched by the, right. the angels. It could be the same experience. They're just interpreting yeah. it differently. So in every yeah. experience, there's a physiological component right. writing on your brain. But then there's also the knowledge and history component, the learning component of you to structure it and say, OK, here's what's happening to me. Yeah. I've learned mm-hmm. about this before. It, it's funny that you you brought that uh, that example up of the the God helmet that Richard Dawkins put on that uh, um, that stimulated what the parietal lobe or something like that. Yeah, uh, I think they were looking at the temporal lobe, which is different okay. than the study we're talking about because those are the systems like the limbic system is a lot of emotional type stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when people, for example, have epile- temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, like Dostoevsky, they have a lot of religious like ideas. Visions and meaningfulness, a sense of they don't have, you know, necessarily grand mal seizures, but they have these notions that something is profound and they get really philosophical and write about it yeah, and stuff. Right. Well, there, there was an article that came out just a day after the one we just discussed. The NPR article suggesting that religion in the brain is, is nothing special. It's not different from our normal uh, processing that our, our brain does. The Independent, a day later, releases an article called Belief and the brain's god spot which you know seems is, is to say just the, the opposite <laughs> we call the that the g spot dave if the orgasm is strong enough you'll believe anything oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, now that now that's an argument for god that i can respect <laughs> yeah well it it seems to be suggesting the other that there are specific 
areas in the brain that correlate with religious experience. And and they're trying to actually Hmm. bill it in this article as, you know, they say uh, belief in God is deeply embedded in the human brain and why religion is a universal human feature that has encompassed all cultures throughout history. They're taking that sexy line on it. But when you actually look at the data that they present in here, um, it's funny, the the studies writers that they're interviewing go out of their way to say, quote, religion doesn't have a God spot as such. It's Instead, it's embedded in a whole range of other belief systems in the brain that we mm. use every day. Actually, it's the same researcher they're quoting yep. it. But the, the writer just gave it the completely different spin that would... They have sell to sell things like Dean right. Hamer's book was the God gene, and then he in the yeah. book he talks about how it's only one gene that has a one aspect. Yeah, and I think that's what's what's good about like theories like Boyer's and stuff is that there is no one spot in the brain, there's no one system, and what is successful about religion? The thing that makes religion so successful is that it's a concept, a cultural concept that unites so many other different systems. Right. Visual, like the, you know, like we just talked about like the uh, the uh, emotional systems of the brain. If I have a voice that's profound and meaningful, if I didn't have a God concept to unite that with, let's say, the person exchange system or the uh, uh, a system that has to do with things like, um, you know, theory of mind, uh, religion unites all those concepts because I can, now I have a God who is personally available that I can make sacrifices and get things to. Uh, if I'm afraid of dying, he cures that. If something talks to me, it's probably him. All mm-hmm. those different experiences become united under that one set of this is God. And so there it's is no one idea or a mean, <coughs> uh, I guess you could say, it becomes yep. much, much more powerful and more likely to spread. And the, and so that's Boyer's whole theory in a nutshell is that if you if you have anything that explains more and more systems, that's the more likely it is to be uh, to be passed down. I have this now idea of God that explains social exchange, theory of mind, in-group favoritism, right. all those different areas. So I guess we have a PR problem right at the outset because I we can account for the data better with all this psychological data, but uh, you know it would take a seminar. Uh, think, well, think about and the way an that... undergrad degree in psych to really explain it to people, whereas God is just an easy. Thing to, think to about the home. way that all three of us have jettisoned our religious beliefs. It probably didn't happen like one day you, no. you know, it all went away. Right. That the things that you discarded first are essentially th- things that are the more personalized God and everything we probably became more and more abstract. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's this, there's a, a evidence right there uh, from a personal basis that, that there are different God concepts that can be held. Some can be jettisoned. You probably said Trinity doesn't make sense, but still, yeah, there's a guy mm-hmm. who listens to my thoughts. Sure. And the ones that you get gradually, you jettison, you get uh, corrodes down to a central core. Those are the kind of like the deep but they're very yep. there's the ones that are most like personal like well somebody's in charge yeah somebody's watching me those are different modules in your brain hmm. if something happens it must have had a actor uh is much more powerful than there's a trinity and he's one but three who cares about trinity that's a very mm-hmm. abstract learned concept right. it doesn't ride on any one area but something like when i'm in trouble and i can talk to somebody there's somebody to listen that's a sticky concept. It's very The core. more basic the idea, the the easier it is to hold yeah. on to. You just gave me an interesting thought, Luke, because uh, I think I hear when atheists talk about how is the best way to debate this to society, oftentimes you'll you'll hear it's it's not right to attack people at their most personal level of the beliefs, you know, keep it about the arguments and everything else. Keep it at the more abstract level and d- discuss proofs of God and stuff. Which, I mean, emotionally just seems to make sense because why why would you do that? It, it does seem like taking, you know, cheap shots at, at maybe somebody's uh, personal psychological support system. But then 
what we were just talking about that could be construed to suggest that maybe the most enduring patterns of belief are those personal ones, and maybe those are the ones that we should address more aggressively, hopefully in a tactfully, or do we, a tactful and, and sympathetic way. Winnow away at the outside and until just the core is left, and, and the core is kind of the I'm not. I'm not threatened by a deist. I'm not worried about deists. You know. Well, a lot of people um, though don't have. If we're talking about on on a popular level, a lot of people don't have more anything more than that core. I think. Uh, I mean, surveys have bared that out too. The 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 biblical literacy of even fundamentalists is is just very low. And mm. and if if biblical literacy is low, I'd have to believe their systematic theology ideas are, are probably even worse. Well, sure. that's a debate that, that we can have is that on a pragmatic level, is it better to prune the tree or to chop it down? You right. know, or is, or right. like in, in using a psychotherapy thing, is it better to, to, to start working at the edges versus going straight at somebody's whole worldview? There's some evidence that people get defensive uh, and, and that when right. you attack their worldview, they, you know, their entire worldview is, is of a piece. And if you and yep. if anything threatens it, they'll actually put up dissonance uh, will cause them to throw up an even greater wall. That's yeah. a good point. I, I consider myself refuted because, yeah, that, that would be the case if the core the core beliefs might be the most firmly entrenched. But precisely for that reason, they're going to be the least assailable probably right. for most people. And I, I also want to say, at, at least for my part here, that I'm not uh, I'm not interested in eradicating religion. OK, this isn't this isn't a hydra that I feel like we have to kill Um now, certainly, I think it's a bad influence, but um, I, I I would agree with you, Dave. But but uh, I but you're I right. Still, in the marketplace I, I support, of ideas, I support we... uh, I support the idea of a little bit of evangelism and atheism. Sure. Because, oh, uh, and I do too. Uh, well, first of all, just because of breeding rates. <laughs> oh yeah. We're not going to uh, gain in numbers by having children anytime soon. And, uh, you know, I, I think we do need to be out there persuading not, people. Not when we're sacrificing yeah. all of them. I mean, as soon as <laughs> somebody right. makes a baby, it goes on the altar. How? Right. Uh, I mean, uh, we're just a bunch of abortion-hungry monsters, so that uh, that will make it difficult. Well, got an email from a listener named Brian Johnson who gave us an idea for a new segment on the show. He says, hello, guys. Love the show. I recently discovered the podcast, and I enjoy the logical approach to religion and spirituality that you employ. He says he is a believer in God, hmm. um, which is great. Uh, I don't think we have a lot of listeners know, for whom that's I know. true. I was thinking about that. Funny, because, funny that. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, no, but in the first 10 episodes, correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but weren't Weren't a fair deal of the emails we were getting for those very first episodes, weren't those religious believers? Yeah, we actually got a, a pretty good amount of people. I know, and I was so encouraged in that early on, especially because none of them were angry. All of them were very thoughtful. Yeah, a couple and, of iTunes reviews from believers yeah, that were kind of nasty. But, but uh, cowards. But, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the religious reply has just dropped off to virtually yeah. zero since then. So I don't know what we're doing wrong uh, or maybe <laughs> or what we're, we're doing, doing right. right. I don't know. Maybe we're yeah, converting convert, all of they're them. They're converted I, or <laughs> what would be another option? Yeah. yeah. Well, Brian is one of our religious listeners, and we're very glad to have you, Brian. I'm glad, I'm glad you're still listening to the show. He says, I have an idea for a future show. You often reference different fallacious arguments – ad hominem, straw man, etc. And uh, it would be interesting to devote a show explaining fallacies that most people use every day without realizing it. Mm. 
Uh, he said, I've studied them a bit in college, but as I prepare for law school in a couple of years, it'd be an entertaining refresher course. Uh, uh, just a, as a quick aside, uh, when he said studying for law school, I, I thought of a podcast that I used to listen to years ago that was really, really good in, in just this subject, in teaching about logical fallacies and how to identify them in an argument. I think it was called Logic and the LSAT. The, the oh. LSAT is the standardized test that you have to take before entering law school. Mm -hmm. So uh, if that is still around, I don't know if it is, but if it is around or if their archives are available, I would definitely recommend to people that they check it out. It was excellent, excellent podcast. I'd also recommend Skeptoid from Skepto Brian Dunning. Skeptoid He's done a, done a couple fantastic. specifically on logical fallacies, but the... Uh, Throughout, he, oh yeah, he, yeah, he deals with those, and uh, that's just a great podcast. You know, you know, uh, and, and so this is kind of the talking about the fallacies, identify a fallacy, spot the fallacy, that sort of thing is kind of typical fare for a skeptical show like mm -hmm. ours. Now, we we really haven't ever done a segment like that, and and I real briefly want to explain. Maybe you guys can tell me uh, if you agree with me here or not. But uh, I sometimes get really frustrated. When I do listen to other podcasts, when they when they deal with these spot the fallacy segments, and one of the reasons why is because uh, sometimes the way it's done is you you have a you have a story, you have an argument from somebody, and then you know the the host says, okay, well, what do we find here? And they just go down the list and go, okay, here's an ad hominem, here's a straw man argument, argument from absence and everything, and and everybody you know tries to spot them. Well, I, I've noticed that we've gotten a lot of emails from listeners who, who might uh, disagree with us on some point, or I even noticed this, you know, just reading this on, on skeptical blogs and stuff. I think a lot of skeptics, like new skeptics, newbie skeptics who are new to critical thinking and uh, scientific reasoning and skepticism, I think sometimes they take this toolbox approach to debunking arguments so when you see an argument that you don't like, you just whip out your logical fallacies. Oh, mm -hmm. you, this is appeal to authority, so we don't have to listen to it anymore. And, uh, and you know, it fuels this kind of quick and dirty refutation attitude. And uh, I, I teach a critical thinking course, and we don't even get into the fallacies until like the sixth or seventh week. And the reason why I've always done that is because um, – there's so many skills to being a good critical thinker that are prior, like first mm -hmm. being able to sit through an argument, to recognize when reasoning is present, to, to see, you know, uh, to be able to spot conclusions and premises and, and see the structure of the argument. Is it a chain of reasoning? Are they side-by-side -side reasons? And I think those things are so important before you even get to the business of spotting fallacies because the, the first task of a critical thinker is to understand the arguments that the other side is making. Mm -hmm. And if you're too busy trying to tear it apart for fallacies, if you're playing just find the fallacy instead of recognize the fallacy by following a line of argument and seeing the fallacious uh, form of the argument, um, well, I think the latter is just more important. So we are going to introduce a new segment on the show today, get to know a fallacy. Get to know a fallacy is where we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to look at different fallacies. We can change the name of that, by the no, way. No, that's a great title. I, Go I, with I, it. I was just thinking of sexual 
in your windows <laughs> yeah, with that, but uh, you know, it's hard not to. Uh, with the, I don't know if you felt that. That's that. why it's a good title. Get to know a logical fallacy. I'm not saying nothing. <clears throat> what we'd like to do is, you know, spend a little more time getting to understand mm-hmm. a particular fallacy. See it uh, more thoroughly. Understand what, what the forms of the argument usually take. And ho- hopefully it'll lead to a more thoughtful approach to debunking claims. Or at least that's the hope. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. Okay, for this first installment of Get to Know a Fallacy, we're going to be looking at the fallacy of false analogy. Now, for the religious skeptic, this is an especially good one to know, because theologians often use analogies in their reasoning. They have to explain supernatural beings that are supposedly far beyond our comprehension, so they often try to illuminate some theological concept by arguing that it is analogous to something else, something from everyday ordinary experience that we do understand. So if you have a firm grasp of how to identify a false analogy, you'll be much better off when you're confronting a lot of different theological arguments. Now before we get into false analogies, let's first take a look at what a good example of reasoning from analogy might look like. Whenever we're reasoning from an analogy, what we do is we take two objects, properties or events, any two things that we would find similar in some respects. So objects A and B are similar because they both share property X and Y. Then we argue that since the two are similar in these aspects, and we know that one of these objects possesses some other property we're interested in, Z, then the other object probably does as well. So objects A and B share property X and Y. Object A also has property Z. And so object B probably has property Z as well. Now, if you're like me, you're not a big fan of algebra. So let's make this one a little more concrete. Let's say Dave comes to me with a problem that he's having with one of his classes. His students aren't participating in group discussions. And he's tried a bunch of different things, but nothing's worked. Anytime he tries to get a discussion going, his students won't say a word. Now, let's say I've had this problem also, but I've been trying some new strategy for getting students more involved in discussions in my classes. An argument from analogy would go like this. Our students are around the same age. They go to the same school. We both teach similar subjects. So since the strategy has worked in my class, it should work in his. Now, if you think about it, there's no guarantee that I can offer Dave that my particular strategy is going to work for him. It's not hard to imagine some situation where he tries the new teaching strategy and it just doesn't work. Now, does that mean it was a bad argument or that we can't trust reasoning from analogy in in general? No, that's not what it means. Because all forms of argument from analogy are examples of inductive reasoning. So, real quick, just in case you need a refresher on the difference between deductive and inductive arguments, in deductive arguments, if the premises are true and the form of the argument is valid, then the conclusion must also be true. Just think of the classic example, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That would be a deductively valid argument. If both premises are true, there's no way the conclusion can be false. 
So deductive arguments are great because they can give you rock-solid conclusions. But a major weakness of deductive arguments is that they really don't tell you anything new. If you know all men are mortal, and if you know Socrates is a man, then no new information is added by telling you that Socrates is also mortal. Now, inductive arguments are different. They can give you new information. Scientific hypotheses are built on inductive reasoning, and science reveals things to us that we didn't know before all the time. But as you know, science cannot give us 100% certainty, only probability. That's the price of induction. Inductive arguments are where if the premises are true, then the conclusion is probably true. Dave might try my fancy new strategy in class, only to watch it tank, but that's probably not going to happen. Given how similar our classes is, it's most likely that it will work. Now, in a false analogy, the objects may be similar in some aspects, but they differ in some crucial way that affects whether or not they share the property in question. So, in my example, the property in question would be whether or not my teaching strategy will actually work. Well, let's say this brilliant strategy that I've come up with is handing out a Red Bull to each of my students as they walk through the door to my class. Well, my class starts at 8 o'clock in the morning, so a little liquid crank perks the kids right up, enabling them to keep up a good class discussion. But let's say Dave starts his class at noon. Well, in that case, his problem has nothing to do with students being groggy or tired. On the contrary, they're fidgety and irritated, just waiting to get out of class so that they can get to lunch. Well, no wonder that strategy wouldn't work in his class. So in this scenario, the argument from analogy falls apart because there was a very important difference which had an impact on the strength of the conclusion. And that's very important to note because this is where people sometimes mess up when calling something a false analogy. It's not that the two objects are different that makes it a false analogy. There might be all sorts of differences that don't really matter. Um, Dave teaches on the second floor. I teach on the fourth. I rely on a whiteboard for my lectures. Dave uses a PowerPoint. All of those would probably be irrelevant. You've only correctly identified a false analogy if the two objects are different in a way that is significant to that other property they are alleged to share. And so in this case, the time of day in which the class is being held is going to make a difference. So let's take a look at an example of a false analogy that is frequently used by Christian apologists. Most, not all, but most design arguments that you're going to come across are arguments from analogy. The most famous, of course, is Richard Paley's watchmaker argument that he outlined in his book Natural Theology. Here's a quote from Paley. Suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that, for anything I knew to the contrary, it had laid there forever. Nor would it perhaps be a very easy thing to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I'd found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer I had before given, that for anything I knew the watch might have always been there. There must have existed at some time, at some place or other, an artificer or artificers who formed the watch for the purpose which we find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. Every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design, which existed in the watch, exists in the works of nature, with the difference on the side of nature, of being greater or more, 
and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. So the analogy he's making here is between the natural biological world and some human artifact, in this case a watch. The two of them are similar to Paley because they both show indications of contrivance, or as David Hume put it, they both show, quote, an accurate adjustment of parts and curious adapting of means to ends. A watch works because many of its intricate parts are assembled in such a way as to fulfill a purpose, that purpose to make the watch actually keep time. Now, likewise, life is made of many intricate biological machines, forming organs like eyes and ears and so on, that serve a purpose to help the animal do what it needs to carry out its daily business, eat, survive, reproduce. So they share the watch and the natural world, share those properties. Paley then argues, Paley then argues, if the watch is clearly a product of intelligence, that wouldn't life have to be a product of intelligence as well? Now, skeptics in our time usually go about trying to refute this argument uh, by pointing to natural selection. Whatever the merits of Paley's analogy, natural selection clearly shows that you can get this accurate adjustment of parts and curious adapting of means to ends without any designing intelligence by entirely blind naturalistic processes. So thanks to Darwin, we now understand that design doesn't always require a designer. But I think what is sometimes overlooked is that even if we didn't know anything about evolution or natural selection, we could still know that Paley's argument fails. If we lived in Paley's time, we wouldn't have to wait until Darwin to show that he was wrong. And in fact, 80 years before Origin was published, David Hume destroyed the watchmaker argument by showing that it rested on a false analogy. In his book, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, Hume pointed out how weak the analogy between nature and some artifact is. And just think for yourself about how different a watch is from a living thing. With a watch, you take material, like metal, and you fashion little parts out of it, and then you assemble them to make the watch, and as long as the parts remain intact and in place, the watch should just function fine. But, but nature isn't really assembled in that sort of way. It grows. Nature's creatures morph into different shapes over their lifetime. They mature, they produce offspring, they die. And we don't keep the same parts throughout our lifetimes. We cycle through all that organic material that makes up our bodies. Now, human artifacts are not like that. And so, as David Hume points out, an analogy to a machine really isn't the best analogy we could come up with. And that's a nice thing about analogies. You're really not limited to using just one. And Hume thinks a far better analogy for the natural world as a whole would be something like a body, either a human body or an animal body or, or something like that. Hume writes in Dialogues, Now if we survey the universe, so far as it falls under our knowledge, it bears a great resemblance to an animal or an organized body, and seems to be actuated with a like principle of life and motion. A continual circulation of matter in it produces no disorder. A continual waste in every part is incessantly repaired. The closest sympathy is perceived throughout the entire system, and each part or member, in performing its proper offices, operates both to its own preservation and to that of the whole. The world, therefore, I infer, says David Hume, is an animal. 
Now, Hume doesn't just stick with that analogy. He also gives us a sort of God-as-vegetable analogy, too. He argues that the universe could just as well be likened to a tree. So instead of some divine watchmaker as our origin, why not some cosmic seed, some kind of cosmic acorn that showers down to the planets? In fact, if I remember correctly, I think he even used comets in his example. Comets would uh, deliver the, the seeds of life or... Uh, or perhaps a comet is the seed of, of life, which, if you've been following the, the science, uh, there's a lot of people who actually do believe now that that may be the case, that, that uh, comets brought the, uh, the first forms of life to Earth. But that's just a side point. Now, if either of those analogies that Hume gives seems silly to you, then fine. But the point is, if we're going to compare the totality of the natural world to something, as far as analogies go... They're at least as good as a watch, and in many ways, they're much better. That, of course, and you're not going to infer an intelligent source from either of them. And in fact, Paley himself might prefer those scenarios to that of the watchmaker, because for a portion of the dialogues, Hume just accepts the watch analogy and then teases out what other implications you might be able to infer from it. And when he does that, things don't end up looking so good for the watchmaker. So, for example, an artifact as complicated as a watch rarely has a single designer or manufacturer. So if we accept the analogy, wouldn't we have to infer that there are multiple designers and not just one? Wouldn't that point to polytheism instead of monotheism? Hume also points out that human designers have bodies. They work from pre-existing materials. They are mortals. So Paley can't get to a god that's transcendent. Paley can't get to a god that's eternal. Paley can't even get to a god that's made of spirit from his watchmaker analogy. And worst of all, Hume points out that when we see imperfections in the design of some artifact like a watch, it points to the flawed intelligence of the designer, doesn't it? In part 11 of the dialogues, Hume declares... If you find any inconveniences and deformities in the building, you will always, without entering into any detail, condemn the architect. This is why Hume found the watchmaker argument not just to be flawed as an analogy, but as he, he puts it in the dialogues, he actually, he actually thought it was offensive theologically. Hume says, I was from the beginning scandalized, I must own, with this resemblance between the deity and human creatures— and must conceive it to imply such a degradation of the supreme being as no sound theist could endure. So, in other words, be careful when you start anthropomorphizing God. You might not like what you end up with. So, in some strange way, it might actually be better off for theism that this analogy doesn't work, because if it did, it's going to point to a very different type of God than any Christian would want to worship. Now, unlike Hume, we do live in a time after Darwin, and so we can point to natural selection as the final nail in the coffin to this design argument. But before we wrap this up, there's something I'd like to point out, and that is I think it's important that we revisit critiques like Hume's from time to time. The reason why is that it's very hard to come up with new arguments for the existence of God. And for that reason, Christian apologists often spend a fair deal of their time just updating older arguments, reworking them and reworking them until they can get them into a form that they think 
will be able to avoid critique. Now, a great example of this can be found in Dinesh D'Souza's book, What's So Great About Christianity? The 13th chapter of his book is named Paley Was Right, Evolution and the Argument from Design. Now, D'Souza sees Darwinism as a challenge to Paley's argument, but more importantly, he sees it as the only challenge to Paley's argument. Conveniently forgetting Hume, he says Paley's argument, quote, was regarded for more than a century as an irrefutable argument for the existence of God. So keeping that in mind, what D'Souza does next is actually pretty clever. He points out that Darwinian natural selection can't actually explain the origin of life itself. He even says Darwin didn't even try. And that's because evolution of life as we know it depends on the existence of DNA and RNA and the cell. It's these taken together that form the basis of heredity, so you can't rely on a Darwinian explanation for how DNA itself arose. Anything after that, and okay, fine. D'Souza concedes that, that evolution can explain it. But where did DNA come from? You're not going to be able to come up with a Darwinian type of argument for that. And even the simplest chain of DNA is incredibly complex in its own right. So to D'Souza, Paley's argument still stands. All you need to do is just push it back a little bit further, not to the diversity and complexity of life, but back further to life's origins. And so, armed with this little piece of information, D'Souza comes up with an analogy of his own. D'Souza writes, Consider the example of a computer. A computer is like Paley's watch. It shows clear evidence of design. No one could seriously contend that the computer somehow evolved through the forces of natural selection. Someone made it, and someone programmed it. Now, let's assume this is not the case with a certain type of software. Let's assume that this software operates in a kind of open-source mode. It accepts random changes, and somehow the most useful and adaptive programs survive. Let's posit that the process here is evolutionary. It's guided by no one. My question is the following. Would the fact of evolution, in the case of the software, in any way undermine the fact of design in the case of the computer? Obviously not. The software may evolve, but someone still had to make the computer and install in it the original programming. Now apply this analogy to the universe. The universe could not have evolved through natural selection, as the universe makes up the whole of nature. Someone made the universe and prescribed the laws that govern its operations. Now within the universe, there are innumerable life forms that correspond in our analogy to the software programs. These life forms are the products of evolution and Darwin and his successors have elegantly elucidated the modes of transition. But evolution has no explanation for the origin of the universe or its laws. In this case, as with the computer, the evolution of the part in no way refutes the deliberate design of the whole. And just a paragraph down, he says, Even if God did not override the laws of nature in order for mankind to emerge, who programmed the cell with its digital code? Who gave it the capacity to make copies of itself? Who made a universe with the laws that could produce mankind? All right, so just as a real quick aside, I want to say that I'm not so sure you need a fully formed cell with DNA and RNA before you can look to a Darwinian-style explanation for the origins of life. 
Um, Daniel Dennett points this out. He says that natural selection is an evolutionary algorithm. Whenever you have replication with a certain degree of fidelity but also some variation combined with some form of selection pressure, you're going to get evolution regardless of the medium. So you really wouldn't need to start with fully formed DNA. What you would need is some form of chemistry where you can get chains of molecules um, which are arranged in such a way that they can make crude copies of themselves. I think Dawkins refers to this as a heredity molecule. But D'Souza's right. It is true that science hasn't figured that one out yet. We don't have our Darwin for the chemical origins of life. But just as Hume answered Paley just fine without a Darwin, we can answer D'Souza in the exact same way. The problem with D'Souza's argument, just like Paley's, is that it rests on a false analogy. Now, DNA is digital in the sense that nucleotides encode information, much like ones and zeros in a software program do. So you can grant him that those two are similar. In fact, I think he even refers to Dawkins uh, for that digital analogy to DNA. But in D'Souza's analogy, the computer is the entire universe, including the laws that govern it. And so it's not really hard to see where this analogy breaks down. Now, in the case of a real computer, it's clear that the hardware is all designed to run the software, and all of its components play some role in that purpose, even if indirectly. The computer's fan, for example, doesn't ever touch an electronic one or zero, but it keeps the computer's interior cool, creating a safe environment for the rest of the components on which the software runs. Now, you're never going to be able to run software if your motherboard and processor are always at risk of melting anytime you flip on the power. That would be very bad design. Now, the universe, however, is not so courteous towards life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The universe, from the perspective of living things, is a dangerous, violent, and inhospitable place. Now, the fact that we're here in the first place is proof that the laws of nature permit life to exist. But we shouldn't get too arrogant about that because it's really not all that different from saying the laws of nature permit rocks to exist. And while there are plenty of rocks out there that exist, life is most likely an exceedingly rare occurrence. And even on our fortunate little rock, life has only existed for a fraction of the time that the universe has existed. So the universe's ability to harbor life doesn't even come close to what so amazed both Paley and Hume the accurate adjustment of parts and curious adapting of means to ends. I'm sure even D'Souza wouldn't buy a computer that had only a vanishingly small chance of running software in the first place, and if it ever does, will take well into the natural lifetime of the hardware to boot up. So, how do you find a false analogy? Once again, look at the objects in the analogy and look for relevant differences that might affect or bear upon whether or not both possess the property in question, which is, in this case, a designing intelligence. And, of course, these are relevant differences. D'Souza's argument, just like Paley's, is based on a false analogy. We don't need to know exactly how DNA came into existence to refute it. His argument barely gets off the ground in the first place. But, like Hume, let's accept D'Souza's computer analogy for just a moment, and see where it takes us if we push it to its logical conclusion. Well, what do we know of computers? 
Is there just one person who designed and manufactures the latest Mac laptop to come out? Of course not. There's a whole arsenal of designers and manufacturers. So monotheism isn't going to follow from D'Souza's analogy either. Are the men and women who roll these machines off the assembly line immortal? Of course not, and so an eternal God can't be established either. And if Windows Update just happens to kick in against your will at 1 o'clock in the morning, causing you to lose your term paper that's due later that day, I'm guessing you're likely to ascribe some attributes to the software's programmers, but I guarantee you intelligence is not going to be one of them. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We'll be back next week with a couple of interviews for you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.